Well, it's a privilege to be here with you guys tonight uh, to consider how we can be the men that God has called us to be in his word. And as you guys saw from the, uh, the cards on your table and obviously from the handout as well, uh, my task, my assignment for this evening is to lead us in a consideration of how we can work for the glory of God. What does it mean for us as men to work for the glory of God? And oh, by the way, I'm supposed to do that in 30 minutes or less. So we'll see if I'm able to do what Pastor Rob is not able to do. I'll try to stay within my time frame, uh, get you guys to the next breakout session. We have a lot of ground to cover this evening, so let me just say at the outset, we're not going to be able to say everything that there is to say on what it means to work for the glory of God, but I do pray that I will give you guys much to think about from the testimony of God's Word. As you'll see in your handouts as well, I'm big on providing really just a flyover sketch of what I'm going to be covering in my lessons. I do it for youth, I do it for college age, I do it for adults. So um, my challenge to you, my encouragement to you would be after our time together tonight, go back to the handout that corresponds with this lesson. Go to the scripture references. Make sure everything that you learned tonight is consistent with the word of God. Go to the cross references that I've provided you in your handout. We don't have time to go to all of them during this session. But I pray that this breakout session and our time together here from start to finish would be glorifying to God and that it would be edifying to all of our souls. So to get started, um, I think it's absolutely important for us. I think it's essential for us to ensure that we're on the same page as to what it means to work for the glory of God in the first place. You know, in Christian circles, there are a few phrases that get used as often as the glory of God. We use that phrase a lot. It's part of our Christian vocabulary, the glory of God. And when considered against the backdrop of Scripture, it shouldn't come as any surprise to us. The glory of God is at the heart and soul of the Bible's narrative. It is the central theme in Scripture. It's at the heart of God's purposes of redeeming men like us from the slave market of sin. Everything that exists in creation, every event that transpires in human history is ultimately oriented toward glorifying God as the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. That's at the heart and soul of of Scripture's testimony. And in passages such as 1 Corinthians 10.31, you heard Pastor Rob quote it in his, in his lesson, we find that the glory of God is at the foundation of our purpose and existence as human beings. Most of you uh, have heard 1 Corinthians 10.31 before your time tonight, but let me just reiterate it to you because I think it's important for what we're going to be covering in this session. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what's the goal of creation? The glory of God. What's the goal of human history? The glory of God. What's the foundational purpose for our existence as human beings? According to Scripture, it's the glory of God. My friends, there are a few biblical truths more important for us to impress upon our hearts than that of the glory of God. But my fear is that despite our familiarity with this biblical concept, my fear is that very few of us have actually stopped to consider what we are actually saying when we use the phrase glory of God. What is the biblical definition to that phrase we use so often in church and amongst our Christian friends? And as it pertains to us as men, how can we glorify God in our workplace environments? How can we work to the glory of God. 
I want to give you a working definition to get started, and then we'll look at a passage that really applies this concept well for us. At bottom, if we were to survey the totality of the Bible, if we were to do word studies on how the, the original Hebrew and the original Greek sets forth the term glory and, and its relationship to God, we find that the word glory is that of which has intrinsic value. That's glory. Intrinsic value. In other words, since, since God is the source of all creation, since God is infinite in all of His perfections, it necessarily follows that when applied to God, glory is speaking of His infinite value. God is infinitely valuable in His being. And as such, our God is worthy of the highest esteem because nothing else in reality, nothing else in creation, nothing else in our lives possesses a greater inherent value than God. He's in a class of His own. So the glory of God, put simply, you leave here tonight, if you've used this cliche before and you've never really stopped to think about what we're saying by glory of God, You can say that glory of God simply refers to the infinite and limitless value that God embodies as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is infinite in worth. On the other hand, when taking this idea of glory of God and applying it to us as men, how can we glorify God? What do we mean when we speak of glorifying God as stated in Scripture? Well, glorifying God refers first to our recognition of God's inherent value. And then living in such a way that reflects that recognition. Okay, so when we speak of how we glorify God, we first must recognize that He is infinite in His worth, infinite in His value. And it's upon doing so that our lifestyle will reflect that recognition. It will be put in action. We will model a lifestyle that reflects God's value to us when we first come to the realization of the value that He alone possesses in and of Himself. If I could say it this way, when we show the world that God is our greatest treasure, it is at that moment that we are bringing glory to God. How can I glorify God in my life? I must first recognize Him as my greatest treasure. And in doing so, my life will reflect it as a follower of Christ. So with this definition in mind regarding the glory of God, I want us to now think specifically, more concretely, on how it applies to our workplace environments. And to help us in making this application, I couldn't think of a passage more relevant than that of Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. So if you have your Bible, please open up to Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24. I went back and forth on uh, using this text, particularly because our senior pastor is going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. And We're about four or five weeks into that study now. But the good news is at the pace we're going through that book, you guys will have forgotten everything that I have to say tonight. It's going to take us at least a year or two to get to Colossians 3 uh, and, of course, the end of chapter 3 at that. So uh, I I was quickly comforted by teaching on this text tonight, knowing that Pastor Rob is going to take a while to get there. But Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. And from this text... We're going to make two primary observations about the intersection between work and the glory of God. Two primary observations from the text about the intersection of work and the glory of God. 
Observation number one, first half of verse 23, we're going to see the charge to work for the glory of God. The charge to work for the glory of God from the first half of verse 23. And in the second half of verse 23 and on throughout the rest of verse 24, remember chapter and verse divisions didn't come about till later on in church history. Second half of verse 23 on throughout the end of verse 24, we're going to see the motivation to work for the glory of God. So the charge, first half of verse 23, second half of verse 23 and 24, we're going to see the motivation. So with this outline in mind, let's turn our attention to the first half of verse 23 and consider together the Apostle Paul's charge to work for the glory of God. And just as a, head, a heads up, I'll be teaching out of the English Standard Version Bible translation. So if you're using a different Bible translation, no problem. Just wanted you to know what I'll be reading from. So first half of verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whatever you do, work heartily. Now, the original context in which Paul gave this charge in verse 23, particularly the first half of verse 23, Paul was originally intending to use this passage to describe master and servant relationships during the middle of the first century. And while this text has a narrow application in terms of the original authorial intent, we as Christians living in the 21st century can take great application from this passage and apply it directly to our lives, particularly to our workplace environments. And we consider it as a unit, when we look at the first half of verse 23, we see two parts, two parts of this verse. The phrase, whatever you do, is the scope of the charge that Paul gives. And the phrase, work heartily, is the desired action of the charge. So you see the scope of the charge, whatever you do, and the desired action of the charge, work heartily. And as we seek to make sense of how these parts of the first half of verse 23 work together, I want us to first zero in on the desired action. So look again to the middle of verse 23. Paul exhorts his readers there to work heartily. And by us, uh, and to us by extension in 21st century, Paul is saying work heartily. Although some commentators note that this phrase could simply be an exhortation to work hard, and that certainly is embedded in the text, the thrust of this verse is that Christians are called to do their work from the heart. So working heartily certainly implies a strong work ethic. It certainly implies pursuing excellence in the context of the workplace. But it even goes deeper than that. It gets to the very foundation of your motives and approach to work. Work heartily. Work from the heart. Everything you do, start from within the very foundation of your being. And that is to say, Christians are called to use their work as a means of of recognizing that work is a gift. Every time you and I go to work as Christians, we are to see our work as a gift And we are to see our work as a unique opportunity of worshiping and bringing glory to God in how we utilize our gifts that he's endowed us with. And insofar that a Christian embraces this perspective about how they should approach their work, they will naturally model a strong work ethic. If you view work as a gift from God, if you view work as a means of worshiping God, and if you see work as a way of showing forth God's infinite worth, a strong work ethic and an excellent work product will organically and naturally follow. But my friends, this doesn't just apply to Christians either. 
While work is, is certainly oriented to, throughout the Bible, that the people of God working and laboring for the glory of their Master, the glory of their Creator, though this verse that we're considering was originally written to Christians, we find in Scripture as well that the exhortation to work for the glory of God even applies to non-believers. And we see that as the case in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Look, go back to Genesis 1 for a moment. In the creation narrative, particularly these two verses, we find that work is inextricably connected to what it means for man to be created in the image of God. So, this is why work is both applicable to believers and non-believers and all under the banner of the glory of God. Work is directly connected with our creation in God's image. Notice those verses with me, beginning in verse 27 of Genesis 1. The text says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, God created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. My friends, it's been well said that man's creation in the image of God could be summarized as this way. As human beings, we are visual or we are bodily representations of the invisible creator. And we have been created to use our will and to use our intellect to love God and love neighbor perfectly. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? It's this. We are visual or bodily reflections of the invisible God. And we have been uniquely wired to use our will and our intellect to love God and love neighbor perfectly. Therefore, as human beings, logically and necessarily follows that a fundamental aspect of our existence is to reflect God in all that we do. And what did we just see from the text? According to the passage we just read from Genesis 1, one of the key ways we're able to reflect God in our lives is through work. Let me give you an analogy for the sake of illustration. Although God does not expend energy, nor does he ever grow tired from his acts in creation, the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 demonstrates that God worked for six days to bring forth the universe. Moreover, as affirmed in texts such as Romans 11.36, we find that God is intimately involved in the affairs of human history through his acts of providence. As Paul declares in that passage, Romans 11.36, from God... And through God and to God are all things. So speaking figuratively, we can rightly say that God is always at work. God is always working to bring about his purposes in the created order. And my friends, this is the pattern that mankind, this is the pattern that both believer and non-believer are commanded and expected to reflect at a creaturely level. According to Genesis 1.28, that verse we just read A few moments ago, God's commissioning of man to subdue the earth, God's commissioning of man to have dominion over the creatures of the world is fundamental to our purpose as a creature made in the image of God. Work is directly connected to God's creation of man. You can't separate work from what it means to be a human being. That's true both of believers. It's equally true for non-believers as well. You see, before the fall, in creation, in that text in Genesis 1, 
God established work as a telos. Work is the ultimate aim or chief into which humanity is oriented to. Therefore, we can rightly affirm work as a good instilled by God in creation. Work is a good instilled by God in creation. Now, we know from just a few chapters later in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we know that man fell into sin. We know that as a result of man's fall into sin, that there are some instances in which man is either physically or mentally incapable of working in a fallen world. We see that fleshed out in our own lives today. We see how work has become a difficult task as a direct byproduct of the sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden. But my friends, that telos still remains. God did not not abrogate the creation order. Human beings made in the image of God... Specifically men, you, me, we have been entrusted with working for the glory of God in every facet of our lives. Work is foundational to our calling as human beings and even more so to our calling as Christians. The Apostle Paul was well aware of this truth and it was on the basis of that awareness that he wrote what he did in verse 23. Flip back to Colossians 3.23 now. We've now considered the desired action of the charge that Paul provides in the middle of Colossians 3.23. He says, work heartily. Work heartily. Now look at that next phrase I want us to examine from verse 23. Right at the beginning. Notice how he starts verse 23. Paul writes, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily, Paul says. Now the scope of this charge that we find in Colossians 3.23, the scope is universal in nature. In other words, regardless of the job that you and I have, regardless of the workplace environment that you and I find ourselves in, regardless of the period of time in human history to which we live in, we have been commissioned by our Creator to do our work from the heart. You and I have been commissioned by God to use our work as a means of showing others that God is most valuable to us. That He's our greatest treasure in this life. And from God's vantage point, any form of work that His people are involved with presents an opportunity for Him to be glorified. And the same is true for the non-believer. Work is an instrument. It's a means of magnifying the splendor and majesty of Almighty God. Whether you're a plumber, whether you're a roofer, a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, a teacher, a professional athlete, a pastor, or any kind of vocation under the sun, whatever you are involved with, your work, my work, is important. It's vital. It matters. Don't ever allow yourself to fall victim to the kind of thinking that says, you know, I'm not paid very much. People don't really applaud my work. The society doesn't think highly of my vocation. So my work just doesn't matter. It's not important. My friends, your work matters. My work matters because it matters to God. Our work matters because work is inseparably connected with being created in God's image. And our work matters because work is a good that God has instilled in creation. It's a telos. It's a goal. It's an aim for all of human beings. Therefore, in all that we do, 
Whatever it is that you are doing right now or will do in the future, may you and may I be one who works heartily in whatever we do for the glory of God. So that's the first half of verse 23. We've seen how Paul sets forth this charge to work for the glory of God. For the remainder of our time in this breakout session, I want us to now observe the motivation to work for the glory of God. The motivation to work for the glory of God. Look again at the second half of verse 23 and verse 24 in your copy of God's Word. Paul writes, Knowing that from the Lord, excuse me, as for the Lord and not for men, picking up on what he said, as for the Lord and not for men, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, as I mentioned previously, chapter and verse divisions were not implemented into our copy of God's Word until later on in church history. Paul did not write his letter with chapter and verse divisions. So the, the, really the second half of verse 23 is a segue into what Paul wants to say in verse 24. Verse 24 explains the significance of of the first half of verse 23 and the second half of verse 23 is the bridge between those two thoughts. So the charge is at the outset of verse 23 and then he segues into the motivation for the rest of 23 and 24. And when we consider this this new thought, this motivation to work for the glory of God, I believe there are at least two prominent truths that we can extract from the text. Truth number one. For the Christian, the reality that Jesus is our Lord and Savior should be enough motivation to ensure that our work is conducted for the glory of God. Our work should present us with an opportunity to glorify God simply because Jesus, in and of Himself, is absolutely worthy. Although God often places authority figures over us in our workplace environments, and even if you're, you're a CEO and, and you oversee the totality of your business, you have at least some level of authority above you, uh, whether it be governmental authorities, whether it be uh, accreditation agencies, or, or some external source of authority that is necessary to your business or to your workplace environment. We all have authorities to which we are accountable to in work. But notice what Paul states at the end of verse 24. Notice what he writes as part of the motivation for us to work for the glory of God. He says at the end of verse 24, In our work, we are serving the Lord Christ. Do you ever stop and think about that when you're at work? That you're ultimately working for Jesus Christ? That you are ultimately serving Him in the context that He's placed you? If there was ever a good reason for us to take our work seriously, this is it. When we consider the fact that our work ultimately exists for us to serve and glorify Jesus where He has placed us, our approach to work will be radically transformed. Let me get very practical for a few moments. When dealing with that difficult boss or coworker, the one that just drives you crazy, maybe you brought him here to our men's conference. When you're dealing with that person, Remember that Jesus placed you right where you are for a special and unique purpose to show that boss and that coworker that God is infinitely worthy to you. When you feel those feelings of discontentment about your employment situation, 
Remember that Jesus has a good and perfect purpose in placing you exactly where you are. Your work is a platform to magnify the great I am with the gifts that you have been entrusted with. Maybe you're tempted to engage in an unethical or a dishonest practice in the context of work. Don't forget that Jesus is intimately aware of every detail that transpires in that workplace environment. There is nothing under the sun that can be hidden from the omnipresent and omniscient eye of the God of heaven and earth. My friends, since Jesus, if you're a Christian tonight, since Jesus is your Lord and Savior and my Lord and Savior, the work that we produce as his people should be done with the highest degree of excellence, with the highest degree of integrity, and with a posture and attitude of joy and thanksgiving. Why? Because for the Christian, pleasing Jesus, showcasing his infinite value before a watching world, it's all the motivation we should ever need to be good stewards of what we've been entrusted with. The glory of Jesus Christ, it's enough for the Christian. It's enough to cause us to do our work with excellence. And then that brings us to the second prominent truth I want us to see from our text. Prominent truth number two from the second half of verse 23 and even into verse 24. Paul writes, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, I know uh, we just got done hearing about the judgment seat of Christ. I promise you I didn't share my notes with Rob before his sermon. So some of this is going to overlap, but I think it's good. In God's providence, he wanted us to hear this multiple times tonight. My friends, you and I will have to stand before our Creator and give an account for how we lived our life. And for the Christian, for the follower of Christ, being rewarded with future inheritance is a powerful motivation for us to work on this earth for God's glory. Now, what does Paul mean by inheritance? Well, if you look at the New Testament record... We find that the, the term inheritance, it's, it's used in a very specific way. It's, it's used to describe eternal life in God's heavenly kingdom. We find the Lord Jesus Christ using the word inheritance in this, in this particular fashion in Matthew 25, verse 34. He, he uses it to describe believers entering into glory after the final judgment. We find in 1 Peter 1.4 that Peter describes an inheritance awaiting those who enter into heaven. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.15 states that eternal salvation is an inheritance for believers. And James in James 2.5 describes those who are rich in faith as heirs of God's kingdom. So when we interpret Scripture with Scripture, Paul's allusion to the inheritance of our reward, it's a clear allusion to our future experience in the eternal state. And in the eternal state, Christian, tonight... When you go to be with God in glory and the new heavens and the new earth are established, you will be rewarded for your faithfulness to what God entrusted you during this life. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15 with me for just a moment on this point. Very important point. Many Christians don't even hear this throughout most, if not all, of their Christian life. I certainly didn't hear it growing up. You and I are not just going to receive an inheritance as believers entering into God's kingdom, but we are going to receive reward for our faithfulness to what we were called to do in this life. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 and following, Paul says this, 
Each person's work will become manifest, for the day of judgment will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Christ survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What's Paul saying here? Well, Paul's saying that the reward we receive as Christians in the eternal state, it will be commensurate or it will correlate with our faithfulness to what God has entrusted to us in this life. And think about how much time we spend at work. Your work and my work, that's one of the biggest responsibilities you'll ever receive in this life. Some of us spend more time at work than we do at home with our families. We spend more time with our coworkers and our business partners and and our prospective business partners. We spend more time with them and interacting with them than we do our wives and our children, our grandchildren and our other relatives as well. What a weighty platform and responsibility that God has given to us in our workplace. But my friends, with that responsibility, if you and I would only work for the glory of God, if you and I would only commit ourselves to striving for excellence in our workplace environment, we will receive ample reward and glory because God is so kind. Because He's so rich in mercy and grace. And here's what's cool about this. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians anywhere from 5 to 10 years before he wrote the book of Colossians. You think he might have had this in mind when he wrote the motivation to work for the glory of God in verse 24? You think this text might have been at the forefront of his mind? Work, my friend, for God's glory. He is worthy and you will be rewarded for your faithfulness. So as we go forth from the men's conference... As you go to your next breakout session and as we close our time together later on this evening, my prayer is the same prayer of the Apostle Paul's recorded in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, that you and I as men, men of God, that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that doing so is never in vain. Let me close with a word of prayer and you guys will be dismissed to your next breakout session. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have seen from your word that work is a good gift that you have lavished upon human beings. And Father, as those who've been created to reflect your glorious image in this world, we ask that you would equip us to leave this conference as men who are more devoted than ever before to conducting our work for your supreme glory. Father, we pray that you would help us to see our work as an act of worship on a daily basis, that you would remind us of the great privilege that we have to use the giftedness you've blessed us with in the context of our workplace environments. And God, I do pray for anybody here tonight that doesn't know you through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, help them to see that they cannot be the men you've called them to be. They cannot be the employee that you've called them to be apart from surrendering their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ by repentance and faith. God, would this conference be not just a means of encouraging us for those who are walking with Christ, but would it also, Father, if you're willing, would it be a means of saving sinners from their sin and from your judgment. So God, we ask now for your blessing on the remainder of the time that we have together this evening, praying all of this in Christ's precious and infinitely valuable name. Amen.